Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Koshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. We're speaking to 25 masters of the design industry, and we're going to learn from them every single week, as we have been so far, and we hope you guys have been liking every episode. Who do we have today? We have Stephen Gates. Stephen is the global head of design for Citibank. He's going to tell us why design and creativity is actually a blue-collar profession, how to design for such an old industry like banking, and what it really takes to become a design leader. We're going to get to this episode. Give us a second right after this partner message. Thanks to Squarespace for their support. Whether you need a domain, a website, or an online store, make your next move at Squarespace. Visit squarespace.com and enter the code HIGHRESOLUTION, one word, for 10% off your first purchase. Steven, thanks for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. First question, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't feel is as clear to other people? That's the first question. This is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the thing that I think about a lot or the one thing that I think is clear lately that I think others struggle with is when you think about creative industries, you think about designers, stuff like that, I honestly feel like we're in a time right now where we have an opportunity to influence businesses, to influence products in a way that I don't think creatives have seen since like the Industrial Revolution. And I think the challenge is, is that we're blowing it. Because I think that there's a little bit of just, even in the question that you asked about when people think about our contribution in the industry as design. I'd look at it a little bit differently because I think that for me, whether you're at an agency, whether you're increasingly at an in-house team like me or something like that, the contribution that companies want is creativity because there's such an increased demand on how do they separate themselves? How do they do things differently? How do they do things better? And a lot of that's creativity, and I think that's what they want, is they want somebody who can come in and show them, how do I have better ideas, and then how do I get those ideas out the door in a way that people still care about? Because mm -hmm. that's the struggle, is so many times it gets this kind of like watered down, neutered down sort of a thing. So I look at that and say, look, our, our focus should be creativity. Our focus should be on business, to move the needle, to take advantage of the seat at the table that we've got that we haven't had in decades. But the problem is if we just focus on design, for me, creativity is problem solving. Design is then the visual expression of that solution. So design is almost a byproduct. Mm -hmm. But I think we've hit this crossroads where we've had the opportunity that's been presented by the industry, but then we also have social media, which suddenly you look at the dribbles, you look at the Pinterest, you look at things like that, that have created this like internet famous focus on looks. I would love to spend my time with no tech constraints, with no budget constraints, <laughs> with no, and just design stuff that's pretty. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have to answer for more than just pretty. And, and I think that's the thing, is that there are so many people that just do the design that don't understand the business piece, that don't understand things like that. And I think that's the place where you can have that real impact. And I think people are just starting to understand that. But I think as an industry, then we struggle because we don't necessarily have the leadership constructs in place for how do you teach people how to do that. So you mentioned, um I, I listen to your podcast, the Crazy mm -hmm. One podcast, um, and you have an entire episode on creativity as a blue-collar profession. Yes. And I found that fascinating. Uh, I think that was the first time I'd heard it expressed that way. Can you talk a little bit about what you, I mean, you've got an entire hour of it. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I can, I can give yeah. you the Cliff Notes version. No, I think, yeah, I mean, I think as a reaction to this want for leadership and stuff like that, and apparently because I have an allergy to free time, yeah. I started the podcast. And I think that one of the things for me was that I grew up in Pittsburgh during the collapse of the steel mills. So I, I really grew up around what were a lot of kind of like blue class, working class people. Yeah. 
And as I've gone on in my career, I had one distinct advantage that my dad was a creative director, so I've been a paid designer since I was 12. Nice. What that taught me, or what that let me see, was an industry from the time whenever it was like doing paste-up keys and cutting ruby lift and a whole bunch of stuff that people were going to have to Google to figure out what it is. But I think that what it let me see is that the idea, the concept, that ideas are a light bulb is bullshit. Like, that's not, we've all been conned into the thinking that it's easy. And a lot of the times I look and try and figure out, okay, like, what are other industries? What are other things that I can use to explain what I mean? And I think creativity is essentially no different than being an athlete. If you talk about a football player, they train through the offseason. They work through the weight room. They do a lot of this stuff to prepare for that moment of greatness, to be on the field to catch the ball. I think creativity is no different. I think that you have to go out and treat it like it's a blue-collar profession, that it is work. Because two things. One is that a light bulb is inspiration. It's not an idea. It's, it's identifying an area of opportunity that gets you excited. You then have to work and grind through a huge amount of that work to figure out what's, what's the kernel, what's the execution, how do I get through all the bad to get to the good. And again, I think this is where a lot of that instant gratification kind of generation suffers with this because they just want to do it once and be done. Mm. So I think there's that issue with it. But I think there's also really treating it like a blue-collar profession because I think if you want to find great ideas, if you want to find breakthrough ideas, you have to find the opportunities and the moments in which those can live. Right? right? Because if you're an athlete, you don't just show up on the field on game day and say, okay, great, now I'm going to be athletic. Right. right, no, creative is no different. That if you're working in a particular industry, if you're working for a client, it's going out and living that industry. It's living whatever that is so that you can say, hey, look, there's, consumers are doing a workaround there. There's something missing there. That was harder than it should be. To identify these areas of opportunity, then I can then go back and put in the time against to be able to have ideas there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also just figuring out, like I, I go to chefs a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting parallel to the work that we do, but I look to them for inspiration. And I think that like one of the best chefs I ever talked with was the Girono, the chef behind Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yeah. And talk to him about, like, okay, whenever young chefs come in, how do you teach them how to be great? How do you teach them? And he had the best explanation around this I ever heard. He said, like, to cook great food, you have to have eaten great food. That's fair enough. And I think design is the same. I think you have to go out and consume whatever your given medium is. I think you have, because you need a palate for, okay, I found the area of opportunity. I've had the idea. How do I know if it's any good? How do I know if it's going to resonate with people on just a conceptual and executional level? So if I'm not constantly working that palette, if I'm not constantly putting in that training, but that's the problem is all that other stuff is the off-season stuff. It's thankless. It's for an opportunity that I don't know when it's going to show up. It's not fun. It's not like, okay, I'm going to go make something. And I think that's the part of it, and that's why I talk about it, is because I think there's become such an emphasis with so many designers just on the making. Making is going to dead-end your career. There's a lot of people that can make pretty pictures. Especially here in New York, not hard to find. People who can think, people who can lead, people who can come in and change a business, unicorns. Cool. I was just yeah, I was just eating that up. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So no creative process is the same, right? right. Um, but I imagine in your experience, you've come across many people's creative processes, and you've probably identified some patterns mm-hmm. amongst them that uh, tend to lead to good outcomes, yeah. right? What are some of those things? I think that a lot of it is, one is teaching them or getting them to have the ability to externalize their process. Yeah. To early on, it, it's not the concept of I, it's the concept of we. Like that's one of the, the simple things I do to evaluate team health is which one of those words do they use. Mm-hmm. But how do I put whatever my idea is out to a group? 
partially to have them help me, right? The best ideas I've ever had, I did not have alone. Everybody has a portfolio, they did not create it alone. But it, I, so I think that's one thing is again, how do I bring in the different perspectives to be able to do that? But also because I want a group of people who will do who do what I do, which is to actively try to break my idea. What are the weak spots? What are the things that could be better? What are the areas that weren't quite thought through? Because I think we just naturally fall in love with our ideas. You hand us a white piece of paper, we put an idea on top of it, there's a personal connection to that irrefutably. So, okay, if I'm gonna be a little bit blinded to that, how do I have this kind of advisor group that can come back and say, okay, look, you need to think about this, this, and this, and construct that in a way that it's not personal. But I think there is the ability to externalize that. I think that there is the willingness, the hunt to fail, to fail fast, to figure out, because I think so much of finding great ideas is finding a lot of really bad ones. Everybody has that process. You start with what is the obvious place that we would start? Where's that thing that everybody would arrive? But then how do I start working out away from that? How do I start to push that? How do I start to connect those dots differently? And I think it goes back to what I talked about before. How are the people where they've spotted an area of opportunity that maybe other people didn't see? I mean, I've, always, I've joked for years, like, I mean, I've worked on automotive accounts. There are gas stations I'm banned from in, like, New York City and, and Texas and other places because, like, I, used, I worked on Subaru for a long time, and I used to go stand at a gas station and wait for, like, somebody in a WRX to drive up, so I'd go ask them about their car. You get a guy that's six foot four walking up to you in a gas station. <laughs> They're car people. Some people love it. Some people call the cops, right? Like... <laughs> Everybody reacts to it a little bit differently. But, but that was the thing to me was like, okay, how do I put that idea out there? How do I find empathy with it? How do I figure out, does it really work or am I just talking to myself? Because there's an inherent understanding that I think, which is the next thing, that you have to have empathy. And empathy is not that arrogance that says, oh, like, you know, I use this product for a little while, I'm the consumer. You're not. Like 90 plus percent of the time, you're not. You need to go out, you need to spend time with these people because there's a difference between what people do and what they say. So build that empathy with them. And I think like those are the three big ones because it's those ways where how can I put it out there? How can I get the strongest idea? Because I think the people who hold it tight, who want it to be precious, who don't want anybody to see it, who want to treat it like it's a fragile little object, the world is not going to treat it like a fragile little object. The, the world is going to treat it as the reality it is. That's why I always get very mad when like a company will put a product out and they're like, oh, we'll fix it in 2.0. Mm. Consumers don't understand what the hell 2.0 is. They understand the product that's in front of them. Right. And so I think you know, those, are, those are just some of the things. But again, I think that's the challenge, though, is that every single person's different. I, so, yeah, oh, go ahead. Okay. so you mentioned uh, externalize the process, a willingness to fail in empathy, right? Mm -hmm. I want to go back to externalizing the process. Sure. Um, you spoke about going out there and actually figuring out what are the opportunities and mm -hmm. bring it back and especially show it to skeptics or cynics. Right. This is a theme that's been coming up to basically put holes in your idea, right? right? Um, but for designers listening, what is that deliverable or what is that thing that you're putting in front of people? Because I imagine a lot of people are assuming it's a design and maybe, maybe it's not that time. And, and, and again, I think a lot of times it, it can be a wide range of things. I think it depends on where you are in the process. I think that that's a lot of times whenever I work through uh, the process on my work, the, the first step that I'm often taking or the first thing I'm taking into testing is, a con is just a conceptual test. It is to look for where are the areas of opportunity. It's kind of like where are the edges? At what point am I going to just simply put an idea out there that's past what consumers can stomach? It's just going to be something that they don't want. I'm talking to myself. Like There's a lot of that sort of stuff. So I think, how do I figure out where those edges are? And then I think that from there, a lot of times I keep it very deliberately low fidelity. It could be sketches. It could just be written. It could be, it's anything that keeps it from feeling like a design-like object. 
Because I think there's just a base human psychology that if it looks real, people will treat it as real. You can put every FPO disclaimer in like 87 point bright red blinking eat it Joe's arrow type, yeah. they're still gonna go, oh, so this is what the button looks like. No. So I think a lot of it is, is starting there with them and bringing them along, but I think a lot of it for me has also been really teaching them what that process is. That this is going to be a journey we're gonna go on together because again, I think that that's one of the bigger challenges is how do I bring in my clients? How do I take them on that journey with me? Because if it's just me kind of coming back and just showing them what it is, they aren't really a part of the process. And then it becomes much more like yes or no or things like that. If I put them on the train, if they go with me, if they're invested in that, nobody wants to jump off a moving train. There's just the base human psychology, I'm gonna support what I'm a part of. So I think that's a lot of it is like, look, you know, because I'll start that by saying, look, if you want to, I'm going to hold you to your word. If you want to be innovative, if you want to do something that's truly different, we have to understand that we don't know where we're going to end up when we start. Because I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I see with so many clients is they don't show up with a problem to be solved. They show up with a solution to be vetted. Vastly different things. And I think for us, it's up to us to push back on that, to not accept, I'm just going to go color in the lines. Mm. But to be able to say, okay, look, we're going to go on this journey. And, and that's going to freak a lot of clients out because as creatives, we're all incredibly used to that uncertainty. We're comfortable with being uncomfortable. We're used to going out, we jump off the cliff, assume that we will build our wings on the way down, and we are not going to wily coyote into the bottom whenever we get there. Nobody else is used to that. Tech organizations aren't used to that. Clients aren't used to that. It's why I see time and time again, if you bring in design thinking, you bring in agile methodologies, it freaks out the entire company because they're used to going from A to B and knowing what B is before they leave A. So I think that's a lot of it is how do I get them used to, and really like the thing I always coach my team on is like what I want in those moments, when I come back with those insights, when I come back with that stuff, is I want them to know that I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Vast and incredible difference. <laughs> crazy is the guy who will take the risk, who will try to land and try to do something differentiated. Stupid is somebody who's just going to either keep it too close or just frivolously risk and, and kind of throw that away. But that's the problem because at the end of the day, if they don't trust me, if they don't have confidence in me, because I think that's the biggest thing that I'm actually selling in that process. It's not one particular insight. It's not what I'm selling is that they have to trust me and they have to have confidence in me because if any of the work that I think is good goes out the door, that has to be there. If it's not, none of it's gonna see the light of day. I'd like to go back to failure for a second. I still yeah, sure. think that plenty of people, plenty of designers, the instinct is you want to get it right the first time. And you're going to do your best to get it right the first time. But right. I'm not sure. Um, I, I've always struggled with you know, people saying, well, you want to fail quickly and you want to fail as many times as possible. Is it that every time you fail leads to the inevitability of finding something that works? Or is it is it by failing you humble yourself, by humbling yourself you you, you empathize a little bit better? What no, is it I, about failure? I like? mean, look, I think that the thing for me is there, there's kind of an internal and external part of that question, right? Yeah. I think from the outside, from my clients and things like that, I want to bring them along on the journey. But that doesn't mean that I necessarily want them to see all of what goes on. Sure. Like, there's a friend of mine who's a designer at Apple who I thought had the best description I ever heard. He always said, look, like as an organization, what I want is I want to be a duck on a pond. Mm. You see it from above, you just see the duck kind of like smoothly gliding along. Underneath the water, thrashing, kicking, it's complete mess. But that's what I want, is I want the reality versus the perception. I, know, I think that it, the failure is just 
understanding how do I break the idea? What really works and what doesn't? And it's not being precious about that. Yeah. I think that, you know, like I, I have that kind of thing. And whether you're coaching your team or you're working on creativity, like the first time it happens, it's a mistake. If you don't learn something from it, then it truly is a failure. Mm. Because failing does not make you a failure. Mm. And I think that's where people get tripped up. Because failing is part of that process. It's finding out what doesn't work. It should be that if I go too far, I'm going to, again, go past what people can stomach or they can do or they want to be a part of or they're just not ready for it, and so I have to dial it back. But that's why I said, just because I'm failing doesn't mean I've, I'm a failure. But that, that's the part of it for me is like if I'm not failing, if I'm not having problems, if stuff isn't working, I'm playing it too safe. Right. So the idea is you want to fail not for the sake of failing. You want to learn from it. Well, I think you have to because I think like the one thing I have a very big allergy to is like if somebody comes in my office and goes, oh, we're going to design this. It's going to be our version of insert brand names experience. Uh, right. Like cover band never changed the world. Right. Like I, if we're all we're going to do is just go through and copy what somebody else did. Yeah. Yes, it's safe. Yes, I understand why you would do that. No competitive differentiation, yeah. no brand lift, no revenue increase, no. So again, like if, if you're going to do that and you just want to be in a feature war, then let's stop all the conversations about being innovative. So I think that that's part of it for me is, is talking and coaching with coaching clients about which one is it. Yeah. Like I, I one time had a client told me that they wanted a proven innovative idea. Yeah. A proven, a right. proven oh, no, innovative. Yeah, I was let that sit for a second, right? Yeah. Because literally it was like, it yeah, kind of makes your brain itch. But I think that's the thing, is, is which one is it? Because if you want to make sure that you're going to hit this particular mark, we can do a lot of testing, we can do a lot of those things, we can know within a reasonable amount of certainty. Yeah. But that's the challenge, is again, we're not going to know where we're going to end up. And, and we need to find out what, was, what worked, what was too far, and, and to be able to do that. So I think that, but I think that's the stigma with it. Is like, oh no, it didn't work. How do I handle that? They're going to think we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. No, set that up in the beginning and saying, look, we're going to go get it wrong a lot, spectacularly, and that's what we want. What is innovation then to you? How do you describe it to not necessarily your team, but the the managing up? Uh, I think process. for me, I you know, it, it's a t it's a tough one, right? Because I think it can take a lot of different forms. For me, innovation in a lot of cases is solving a problem, filling a need, and not copying while you do it. Mm -hmm. And I think, but it comes in a lot of forms. Sometimes it can be big and spectacular. I think, you know, the work that I did at Starwood when we said, okay, look, the key card's been around for 40 years. Mm. We're going to go out and completely rethink that because we feel like that, that's a moment that could be much easier. That we looked at that and said, okay, you know, we went back and looked at the consumer and said, what are those point of friction? I've been on, hour, I've been on a flight for 16 hours. I get off. I don't want to stand at the desk. I just want to go right to my room. I have something that will be able to let me do that. I constantly either demagnetize or forget the key card. Mm -hmm. So there's a need there. And that, that hasn't been met. So let's go out and let's try and figure out how to fix that. Right. That's big. That's spectacular, press-worthy, keynote-worthy, all that stuff. I think it can be much smaller. But, but that's the thing to me is, like, can we look at that and say that this is actually different, better, meets a need in a way that it hasn't been done before. Mm. And I think that, but the challenge to that is, how do I do it in a way that it actually gets out the door in a form that people still care about? Because I think so much of innovation, people use that word like they know what the hell it means. Right. It, there are tons of companies where it's like, I'm gonna release a screenshot and a press release about something <laughs> we might do someday. <laughs> not innovative, right? right? Pressworthy, not, in, not innovative. But I think that's the thing, is that so many people have gotten caught up in that buzzword. Let's be agile, let's be innovative, let's be, do you know what that means? Like, and, and I'll ask the clients. I'll be like, look, tell me, what do you think that means? And I, had, I mean, I've had a fascinating process where whenever I went between Star and I went to City, 
I would sit down and I so understood that the thing that I needed was leadership yeah. that could trust. Yeah. And even if they couldn't define innovation, they could trust that other people could. And you would find some leaders who could. And I found the CEO of a huge company. And I sat down and I said, great, you know, I'm going to need your support. Can you define innovation for me? Mm. And he said, you know what, I really would love it if we could like, update the point of sale systems in our stores. Thanks for your time. Got to go. This has been great. I'm out, right? Because that's the thing. is, it, it, That's not innovation. Right. But that's the thing to me. And I think that for me, innovation is also for the fact that it's the willingness to fail. Because I, I think you only find innovation if you're willing to put it out there and know that it's not going to be the huge home run. Mm -hmm. Like that was the thing, you know, that was the shift that we made. When we found success at Starwood, we said, okay, look, stop doing these huge year-long projects. We're going to come up, we're going to do an MVP of Keyless, and we're going to put it in two hotels. One was here in, in Harlem. The other one, not surprisingly, was in Cupertino. Mm -hmm. And those were the two. Then it went to 10, then it went to 150. But it was like, look, let's do it and let's scale. Let's figure out that if there are five people in an elevator, that that could become problematic because there's a key reader in there that you have to use. Mm -hmm. It has to work at the gym and the pool. It has to, like there's a whole host of these other use cases we didn't think about. But let's start to do that. Let's fail along the way. Let's do it in a way that we're, we're failing smart. Mm -hmm. We're not failing at scale. How do you define divergent and convergent thinking? And why do you think it's so critical to a designer's creative process? I think, I mean, the thing that I would say is, so divergent and convergent thinking really comes out of design thinking, which really is how do we just give shape to creativity? Because I think the reason why it's so critical or the reason why understanding it is so critical is because in most cases, I interview a lot of designers. And they come in and they sit down and I'll ask them and I'll say, okay, look, tell me how you have an idea. Tons of blank stares, right? I'm like, no, like what is, what do you do whenever it goes right? What do you do when it goes wrong? And I think most of them don't have the self-awareness or don't understand how do you summon your creativity on demand? Because so much of growth in our industry is the ability to do that. If I wanna be a head of design, if I wanna do things like that, I've developed that ability to give feedback on the spot. But I think, you know, the divergent convergent thinking is just really, again, this goes back to the blue collar profession kind of question before that it's going through and saying, okay, look, I'm gonna have a ton of ideas. I wanna identify a lot of areas of opportunity. I wanna diverge. And I just want to go for scale. How many ideas, how many opportunities can I go for? And then I wanna converge and I wanna bring it back together. I wanna to edit it back down. But it's not just doing that cycle once. It's doing it again and again and again. Try to, try to break the ideas, weed out the weak ones, find where there are overlaps. Do that sort of a process to be able to do that. But I think, again, a lot of people, you'll see them do it once. And either they fall in love with the first idea they have, or if they have multiple ideas, they fall in love with those. And so there's a big jump initially. But then after that, it just kind of is pushing the pieces around. Much, much smaller incremental change after that. But it's in sense saying, okay, look, we need to make that a leap of that size again. Let's do it, like, make it just as big, push it just as far. And it just, it starts to kind of weed itself down as it goes, where the weaker ideas will start to fall out, the stronger ones will start to rise, you'll start to polish those, and it gets that kind of sine wave that starts really big and then starts to kind of trail off to a fine point. But that's why I think it's so important for me is, like I said, I think so much of creativity in the industry or with so many designers, it's just happenstance. And so I think, you know, that's... That's the challenge, I think, from a leadership perspective, from a coaching perspective. I think that's why it's so important to, to understand concepts like that. So it's, it's, giving, it's also giving younger, less experienced designers a framework to think. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. I but mean, I, but I, would, I would argue even bigger than that because I think as when we go back and we talk about it, if, if our charge is to bring creativity into a company, yeah. 
a big part of it is the fact that like if my product is just design, right. I can put out a, a visual artifact and I can do it in a certain amount of, amount of time, especially for an internal team. I've done a fantastic job of making my team a commodity because of the fact that all I can do is deliver on a deadline. If my product is then creativity, a, a shift happens. Not a, one in perception, because my group, instead of now being looked at as a commodity, is just a lot of this will come to light. Well, they'll be it's like, oh, we're a service organization. <laughs> hate that. Hate. It's like it's why I won't even go talk to like in-house design team conferences because it's like I want to hear people whine about like, oh, we're a service. And like, no, you're not. But I think that's the thing is if it's about creativity, then my team is now empowered to be leaders, right? Because we've gone from being the commodity to being kind of the Sherpas who are going to teach any group how to be creative. Yeah. And I think that shift is huge, but then also because of the fact that now my team has become a critical asset. You want to have better ideas, you want to do better things like that, you need the creative team involved with you. Because that's, again, that's the, the perception from if the delivery is just design, yeah. then I'm viewed as a commodity. Why do I need to be a part of a, a, a brainstorm? Mm -hmm. If my product is creativity, we absolutely have to be a part of that brainstorm. Yeah. And people want us to be there. So again, I think that's that shift in kind of what's the deliverable, how do you position it, what's your product, to be able to get you to that. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about how you lead people. Um, but I want to start with, do you feel a sense of responsibility over your people's happiness, people that report to you? It's a tough question. I, I think yes and no. I think I, I feel responsible for it in the moments when I let them down. Because, I, again, I think, you know, if I'm the one that's leading the way, if I'm setting the tone, if I'm the one that, that's kind of mapping that out, yeah. the moments when I stumble, the moments when I let them down. I had one of these moments yesterday where I completely whiffed on something and the team missed a big recognition they should have. It crushes me, right? Because I know it affects them. They, didn't, they weren't lifted up the way that they should. That being said, I, I can't... This goes a little bit back to like, do you know your creative process? Do you know how to have an idea? The other question I'll often ask creatives in an interview, which I think throws all of them for a complete loop, is do you know how to be happy? Again, a lot of stares. Because I think that most people, and especially creatives, because I think by our very nature, we look at things and figure out how do we question them? How do we connect the dots differently? Like, how do we figure out what's wrong with it? It's a hard switch to turn off. Mm -hmm. It's hard to kind of say, okay, I'm not going to be that way anymore. Because creative doesn't have an off switch. I, I don't like, you know, go home at night and go, okay, yeah. not, not, I don't see things yeah. that way anymore. <laughs> um, but that's the hard part is because, you know, do you actually know how to be happy? Do you know what you need? For a couple reasons. I think one is because the concept of what you're going to need to be happy changes over the arc of your career. Yeah. By just the fundamental nature of the fact that what brings you into any industry where you create, designer, chef, welder, whatever. Like, the longer you do it, the inherently, the further you get away from doing it. I started 12 years old as a designer. I have to fight now to be the guy that can at least find the time to walk into, a, like, a room and sketch on a whiteboard or doodle on my iPad or because just the responsibilities are different because now I have other people who do that and I have to give them the space to be able to, to do that. So, like, my concept of happiness, being that kid at 12 to now, changed multiple times. <laughs> But the reason why I think that's important and the reason why I ask about it is because I think that too many designers look to leadership and say, you're responsible for my process. You're responsible for keeping me happy. Mm -hmm. I, I take issue with that. Because I think if you don't know where your career is going, if you don't know what you need to be happy, there, I can't be the one that's going to give that to you. It's an unrealistic expectation to put on me. Right. Because the hardest person for me to coach, whenever I sit down, and I say, where do you want to go in your career? What do you need to be happy? I don't know. You need to tell me. Right. I, I'm, I'm not you. I can guess, 
but I'm probably going to get it wrong more than I get it right, which means you're going to get frustrated and you're going to leave before we can figure that out. Right. Also, just because I want people who at least can question that and can start to be on the road to that because those are the people that want to improve. I don't want to hire people that are destined to stay in the same spot I'm hiring them for. Yeah. I want them to have ambition and drive and grow. And, but I think that's the part of it. But I think the other part of why I ask is because I think having ideas has an emotional component to it that I think most people do not talk about. Because there is just there is a base human psychology that whenever you're happier, you're more creative. But if, you know, and it's, again, I'll turn to sports psychology. You talk about like a, a baseball hitter. If they're really in the zone, hitting that baseball, it looks like a basketball. Mm-hmm. Whenever they're really struggling, they're in a bad headspace, it's like hitting a grain of rice. Mm-hmm. I don't think creative is much different. So if people don't know what they need to be happy and they put themselves in a bad headspace, their creativity drops. The, the, the quality of their ideas drop. And, you know, then it's a lot of time to go in and figure out how do I kind of drag them back out of that and to be able to do that and again i think it's just plus it's just it's a hard space to go into you know because again it it starts to bring in you know things from their personal lives like there's a lot of other stuff that can go into that but also just for the fact that i i I truly believe that i think that the best creatives i know also realize the fact that you don't get everything you need to be happy creatively just from your job i agree i would like for me best day best job best moment 70 80 percent I think it's why I do the podcast. It's why I speak. It's why I write. Like, there's a certain part of like I just I need a different gear. It's honestly, it's why I cook every night. Because just you know, I working at a 200 year old bank at that scale, I would like to start and finish something and make somebody happy in the span of an hour and a half. <laughs> and and so again, I think like, but I recognize that in me that you know that that simple act of completing something creative does a huge amount for me. Earlier, you said uh, you whiffed on on. Uh the uh, on, on your team getting yeah, yeah. recognized for something. Um, how often do you s- make sure that your team gets recognized when you speak to the executives when you're when you're directing people above you? Um, how often do you put your team in front of them, and what do you? Show oh, I, as much as much as I can, because yeah. for a lot of reasons, I think one is just for the fact that again, for my team to be successful, yeah. I cannot have a team that is sitting around just waiting for me to be the one that takes the action, for me to be the one with the idea, for me to be the one that does it. Like every single person has to be empowered to be part of the solution. Right. Because I think that's the trap, as if you're kind of like, again, oh, culture, that's up to leadership. You know, my career, that's up to them. It, it's not. And so I think you know, the, my part of it for me is, is to put them in, in those positions as often as possible. Sure. I like to promote from within. I like, because again, as we go back to the fact that I am not the one that had the idea alone. I didn't do the work alone. It's fascist and boring for me to stand up there and say, you know, okay, yes, I'm the one. Sure, there are the meetings where they just want certain people of a certain title to be in there, and yes, I go in and present. But no, I mean, most of the time, whenever they're dealing with my peers, you know, the, the, whoever it is, the designer that's four tiers down from me, that's the one that's presenting to the person who's my peer because it's just you have to have that dialogue because, again, there has to be that trust. Yeah. And, so the, and also just because of the base fact that if they have an idea and if they have a question, I want them to be able to ask it. Yeah. Not that they ask the creative director who asks the group creative director who asks me, who then goes ask their peer and then it telephones all the way back down. Right. Like we, we need to be able to have that kind of flow to things. So And that gives them a self a, a, a self-pride aspect, a sense of responsibility over the work, allows them to grow communication and ownership. And, ownership. and because I think that's the part is like, you know, for the last ten years I've come into companies and said, Okay, look, we need to turn teams around. Yeah. That's the part of it is like the moment when it happens is when that team starts to believe. Whenever they go from, from stopping the commodity to being the critical asset, whenever they believe. But a lot of that has to be you have to walk your talk. You have to put them in that spot. They have to see change because too many organizations have had too many other people who have walked in and said the right thing and couldn't deliver. 
Thanks again to Squarespace for supporting the show. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to get a domain, create a website, or build an online store. They have beautiful, award-winning designer templates and 24-7 customer service. Our project, High Resolution, is on Squarespace. We chose it because it just made sense. We had a lot of research, writing, preparation for our interviews and traveling to do. We just didn't have the time to waste figuring out how to style or build our site. So we just hopped on Squarespace, checked out their templates, and picked the one that worked for our brand and our style. We were done in less than a day. So if you've been thinking about starting your own website or even online store, start your free trial today at squarespace.com and use the offer code HIGHRESOLUTION, that's one word, to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. So, I mean, you speak really, really well, right? <laughs> and uh, I'm just sitting here just blown away. But I, I'm really curious how critical you think communication skills is or are to a designer. Oh, yeah. No, I think, you know, I mean, for me, it was an interesting thing. Like I said, I, I grew up in an ad agency. I grew up, you know, learning typography on a 700-pound letterpress in my parents' basement. And I think, you know, when you start working in an agency, I think one of the things I started to realize was that even if I was a really good designer, it was only going to take me so far. That at a certain point, that the better jobs were really dependent on your ability to present ideas, to sell ideas, to communicate with people, to lead people. And the challenge that I had was that honestly, all the way up until probably even I left college, I couldn't speak in front of like more than four people without being <laughs> terrified. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it. And it was one of those things where I think, you know, throughout my career, I've kind of stepped back mm -hmm. and looked at myself and said, okay, that can't continue. Yeah. And so I started to do little things. Like I would just, you know, my senior year, I started to give tours at, at, the, at my college just to be able to start to get in front of people to figure out how do I do a routine? How do you make them laugh? How do you do stuff like that? But, you know, the way that I usually am with things, I got incredibly cerebral with it. I started to go out and talk to, like, sports agents and venture capitalists. I started to study with, like, poker players who could start to look at physical tells to be able to study things like that. I started to talk to, like, police officers and um, interrogators from SEAL Team 6. So, like... I mean, you, Wait, you, I, see, I, you seek yeah. these people out? No, no, I do, because part of it was like, okay, I could start to communicate and I started to get better at it. Partially because I'm six foot four and I couldn't whisper in a hurricane. <laughs> like, I just, I don't have the projection problem that some people have. But then I started to do more new business. Well, the thing whenever you start to do new business is I'm now pitching, I'm selling mm -hmm. to a cold room. Mm 
Mm. I have to walk in and realize that the loudmouth guy in the front isn't the decision maker, it's the quiet guy in the back, and that he's the one I really need to sell to. But I have to read that room in an instant and figure out how do I adapt what it is that I'm saying. So I think a lot of it for me was just wanting to start to study this, to start to study how do I communicate better, how do I do it more effectively. Like I went and talked to comedians, you would, but I just started to talk to all these people. I took like mime classes, like all kinds of crazy wow. stuff. Because it, for me it was just like, look, it, it's not an option for me to be able to do this. But I think that I then started to realize that it wasn't that knowledge was power, it was that sharing was power. And so that if I started to be able to share in my team, in my company, it, it also started to then realize that, okay, well, companies want people, they want to hire people that other people have heard of. They want that like gee whiz factor. So for me to be able to do that, I need to build my brand. And so then I need to start doing public speaking. And so now it's like, I've done talks in front of like 10,000 or more people. And so, I mean, it's a long way from the kid in college who couldn't speak in front of, but I think that was the part of it was, you know, my ability to deliver feedbacks quickly, succinctly, my ability to, to sell, to really pitch, to sway hearts and minds of my own team and of my clients, that's just like the bedrock of, of what it is. And it's to the point where I actually teach about a three-hour class on presentation skills to all of my team. Okay. And we practice it regularly because I think most creatives have no idea how to do it. Yeah. And I think most of them present. Yeah which is a massive, massive mistake. You're not presenting, you're selling. It's a very different mindset. It's a very different way of approaching what you're doing. Like if you have an Excel spreadsheet, you present it. Creative is subjective, you sell it. What does that three-hour class look like? Like what are you teaching them? The three-hour class is, is a whole range of things. I think a lot of it is, is one is understanding just like your creative process, just like your leadership process, your presentation style is unique to you. Mm -hmm. What is gonna make each of you nervous, what's gonna make each of you confident is gonna be different from me. Like I'm the guy who I need to sacrifice accuracy for storytelling. I, I if I read off a script, I sound like a public access commercial. I'm horrible. Like so, it, you know, I've realized that you know very bare slides, few things. Pay attention to me. Listen to what I have to say. Give me the ability that maybe I have a couple bullet points, but I can riff on that, so I can tell an engaging story, and that my flow, the way that I speak, the cadence of my voice is, has much more conviction to it than again if I'm reading something. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff of just getting to understand who you are, of kind of looking at what are just like the base personas around, you know, are you an educator? Are you somebody who's an entertainer? Are you somebody that's gonna do, kind of be inspirational? As you, as you present, you generally start with one of those, but as you get better, how do you combine the three of them together? To then just the basics of how do you actually give a presentation? Like, how do, you, how do you use builds? How do I tell a story? And literally, I'll go back and use just like, you know, the, the classic like Greek mythology arc mm -hmm. of, you know, we started a problem, we went away, we didn't want to do it, like that hero's journey. Use that and map that back to a presentation, again, to bring the client along, to bring them into that. All kinds of crazy stuff about even, again, when you talk about, you know, the guys from SEAL Team 6 or from the police officers or stuff, how do you even manipulate physical space? Mm -hmm. Because there's a base human psychology that says, if I'm inside of four feet from you, I'm inside a personal space. So if I was standing next to you that close, you start to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. If I'm beyond 12 feet from you, I'm getting what's called disconnected space, which means we're far enough apart that you feel like you can tune out without any consequence. So if I'm gonna be in a boardroom that has a 24 foot long table, stand in the middle. But it also means if I have somebody that's being a problem in a meeting, go stand next to them and use that physical proximity to control them. Mm. Tons of like these nuances of how to get them to just understand the base mechanics of just how do you control a room? How do you tell a story? But how do you do it your way? 
I'm sure any designer would want to sit in this three-hour class, but right. we don't have the time, and no, no one can access you. Right. Uh, but what? <laughs> well, I, would, I mean, look, I, I will. I will. Well, I was gonna say, I, there, 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 there are three episodes on my podcast where I go over this in yeah. great detail. But for here today, I think the thing is just how do you start to develop? Just like with your creative process, when we talk about self-awareness, your presentation style is exactly the same. How do you start to recognize what did I do when a presentation went well? What did I do when it didn't go well? And the biggest way to do that is to record yourself. Because the thing that I always equate it to is like for me, I hear my voice on my podcast or I hear it on a voicemail. And I think for as long as I've been alive, I've heard my voice in my head 24 hours a day for every day I've been alive. I cannot sound like that much of a tool. <laughs> but that's the problem is the way it rattles around in my head and comes out is very yeah. different. Public speaking or just right. presenting isn't that different because the problem is is that whenever I'm speaking, yeah. I, my brain is queuing up the next thing I'm going to say. It yeah. sends it down to my mouth. My mouth is talking. My brain is on the next sentence. So this is where a lot of nervous tics come in. This is where a lot of different things happen where the ums, the so, the uh, the, those little tics where people who aren't comfortable with silence start to develop that. But that is also just the inherent problem of that happens because since my brain and my mouth are in two different places, I'm not actually aware of how well I'm doing whenever I talk. So what I make people do is to go through, do a dry run of the presentation. Everybody has an iPhone, prop it up somewhere, have a boyfriend, girlfriend, goldfish, dog, hold it, whatever it is, record it, do the presentation. Stop and say, how do I think I did? Man, I killed it, I was great, the flow was great, I was funny, it was awesome, go back and watch it. It's going to be hearing your voice on that podcast or on that voicemail. There are going to be ticks that you didn't know you had. There's going to be the cadence really wasn't that smooth. You're not going to be quite as eloquent because, again, I'm glossing it over in my head because it sounds great and feels great in my head. The way it comes out of my mouth could be totally different. You've had, and I think a lot of people have had the experience of working agency side and client side. Yeah. Um, now, this is something we actually explored with Scott Belsky as well, but I'd like to ask you, sure. what are some of the differences between freelancers, agency designers, client-side designers? Where do they stand in contrast with each other? And then right. what can they learn from each other? Well, yeah, no, and I think, I mean, we'll start with kind of agency and client-side because I think those are kind of the, the, the easiest to kind of pair against each other. Yeah. At the agency, I think, you know, the thing that you learn is that creative is the heart of the house. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, that is the engine that drives that machine. Client side, that's not the case. You know, whenever I went, you go to Starwood, you go to City, we're about putting heads in beds, we're about putting dollars in bank accounts, right? Like that, that's just the base part of what it is that we do. So just the relationship to the business is very different. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, on the agency side, you know, the, the challenge there is the fact that no matter what you do, you are disconnected from the actual business. So I think what they, you can learn on that side is the fact that treat it like you're actually a part of that company. Invest in it, invest in learning that business and, and, and generally understanding it, not understanding it from like we're standing on the other side of the wall. But to spend the time so you can have the ideas and the insights to generally understand what that is. But at the same time, leverage the external perspective. Because of the fact that you've come in from the outside, it does give you a different view on it. I think you can be overly blinded by that. Because you're like, oh, we're new, we're, some stuff you're right. That, that is an insight that we haven't thought about. Some stuff we did think about it and we, it's a bad idea. Mm. I think on the client side, it very much becomes about how do I preserve that agency spirit? Because the problem with, on the client side is the fact that whenever I'm at an agency and I'm working on an account, there is an inherent threat that if I screw it up, I'm getting fired. Mm. It keeps the knife sharp. It creates a hunger and a drive and just a, a willingness to get stuff done. Whenever you're on the client side, you don't have that. I personally may be able to get fired, but it's just it's a very different relationship. So I think the, the possibility for complacency 
is much, much higher. And so how do I keep that agency mentality, but basically become an internal agency with a client who just can't fire me? Mm-hmm. But I think you know both sides have the, the pros and cons to be able to do that because whenever I'm on the client side, I, I don't have that you know several degrees of separation. I'm on the inside. I should be able to leverage that, and I should be able to win every day of the week and twice on Sunday because I'm that much closer to it. But I think you know so there, there's a push and pull between that for for creatives, and it's just understanding how do we do that. Freelancers, then I think you know it, it, it occupies an interesting space because I I always look at it. Some people are freelancers because they should be. Some people are freelancers because of circumstance. I think that they should be either because they are really good at just being the independent contractor, the person who comes in with a very specific skill set. They come in, there's something they can execute incredibly well, and that they can come in and and you value them for that. And you bring them in and and you do that and then you kind of move on. I think what the other one, though, is a lot of times it's a freelancer who is somebody who either doesn't understand their process, doesn't understand their creativity. There is something that prevents them from meshing with the team. And so instead of, I mean, quite honestly, turning and kind of facing what that is, it's easier to just kind of keep bouncing around. But can you actually do, so I see what you're saying, but if you're a freelancer, if you still don't mesh well with a team, can you actually do your job? Can you actually do the work of a designer well? I, 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 think, I think it's a big challenge, right? I think it depends on the, the scale and the size of the client. Because I think if it's, if it's a big team that, that does value the we, you're going to struggle. And, and again, and I think that's why you see some people who go off and they, they do their own thing. They, they decide they want to work with small clients. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But it's just at scale, big agencies, big companies, things like that, when you need to be a part of it, the diva and the rock star is like the thing that I don't need. Right. Because I can't have somebody who thinks that they're above or better than the team. Mm-hmm. Partially because I think if you develop the organization the right way and that there is that we're going to actively try to break ideas, mm-hmm. they will reject... The, the rock star who doesn't want to externalize their process, who doesn't want to, so the, or, the, like the organism will kind of spit it out. Right. And, and I think that there's a challenge for that, but you know, I think that's just, creativity is a team sport. It is. And it's hard to get around that. I think it's the same way it's, it's a blue collar profession. It's a team sport and you need other people to get better. And it doesn't mean you can't do it on your own, but I think but there's, there's a shelf life to it. And at a certain point where, you know, I've seen too many people who go that road who are then five or ten years down the road really pissed off and frustrated about why, is, why am I not advancing past this position, this role, this skill set, this whatever it is. And that's the thing is because past a certain point, it's about the we. You are the head of design at Citibank. Citibank is a really, really old institution, yes. right? Um, I'm really curious, what were some of the conversations you had with executives when you were deciding to actually come into this company? Yeah, so, so just to be clear, so I'm, I'm the head of design for the Global Consumer Bank. Um, so obviously if you see a city branch or something like that, that falls to me. And I think, I mean, it was, it was a fascinating conversation. But the one thing that I, I, I have to say is that I do think there are a lot of industries that just get a bad rap. I think you, you, some of them, you know, banking had its challenges, so it, it's not that that's not understandable. But I think as, as you look at the role that design plays in a lot of organizations today, I mean, like somebody pointed out to me the other day, like Microsoft doesn't have a head of design. So I think that it's just, you know, it, it's more than just banking that has this challenge. But I think, you know, the, the thing that I look for, and it was the thing that I looked for at agencies, at companies, when I was at Starwood, when I was at City or something like that, it was getting back to what I said before about leadership. I need leadership that's willing to trust. I need leadership that's willing to take a risk. I need leadership, quite bluntly, that's going to put their money where their mouth is. Because I think the one thing that I've learned, and probably the biggest reason why I left the agency world, was I got too tired of working for too many clients 
who again, were all about innovation, were all about change and agile and all that stuff, right up until the moment where it meant that I was gonna ask them to do something different. Mm. And then all of a sudden, they lost the force of that conviction and of that sentence and of things like that. But I think that's the thing for me is like, where are the leaders who are willing to back that up? And I think whenever I went into City and I had that discussion, you know, I'll be honest, I, I, didn't, I didn't enter that job market because I was talking to agencies and in-house companies and consultancies and everything else. I, I, banks wasn't at the top of that list. But I think that was an incredibly arrogant and naive perspective on my part. Because at the end of the day, whenever you go in and they say, look, you know, we're a 204-year-old institution, and we feel like design is going to be one of the big differentiators for us going forward, and that there is a massive appetite for it, but we need somebody who can help show up and deliver it. The opportunity to affect the way that people relate with their money. Like, you want to talk about you actually want to put a dent in the universe. Government, healthcare, banking, Apple, Facebook, Google. Like, there's, there are a few of those that you can do it with. But I think that, you know, for me, that that was the thing was... As I sat down and thought about it, as I thought about the opportunity to come in and to be able to do that and to have the executive support behind that, because the other part that I've learned is if you want to come in and change an organization, one, it's not quick, and it takes time, and it takes patience, both of which are usually in short supply. But I think that it's one of those things, though, that I need people who will stick with me on that, who are going to back me on that, who are going to you know, be able to, to really do that, because just organizationally, what, I'm gonna, what I find happens is... You, you come in, you get the buy-in from the design team. They are desperate for somebody who is going to come in and to lead them out of being the commodity into being the critical asset. You get the buy-in from the executives who are then really all about, like, yes, we can see positionally this is what we need. The problem is all the tiers in the middle. It's everybody who's built up the little fiefdoms, the little kingdoms, their way of doing things, their process, their button color, right? Like, go to the website, yeah, that's my, we've tested it, orange is better than blue, whatever. But I think that's the problem. Is, but by doing it that way and by getting that sort of buy-in, what I know is like, okay, whenever I get into that middle layer and I need to start affecting change, and they say, well, we've done this a long time. We've studied. We've researched. I've got, I'm going to have to escalate to my boss, and they're going to escalate to their boss, and they're going to escalate to their boss. It's like, you know what, dude? I'll meet you at the top. Like, let's, great. Because I think that there is buy-in to do that because, you know, the, the grassroots thing is harder. But I think that was, that was what drew me to it was I, I found a CEO on the Global Consumer Bank. I found leadership that really wanted to do that. That whenever I went and said, look, these are some of my ideas that I have, and I presented some of those to them, that they didn't get scared. They didn't try to make it smaller. This wasn't the point of sale system thing. Because I think that's the thing that I found is like, you know, the work that we did at Starwood, it was only possible because we had a CEO who profoundly believed in what we were doing and who trusted us to go do it. I mean, there were times we worked on those projects with Apple there were two people at the company that knew what we were doing. It was like the head of digital and the CEO, and that was it. And he had to take a huge amount of heat for why his head of design would disappear for like months at a time. But he had faith to be able to do that. And, and the thing was for me, like if you have leadership that does that, if you want to be that leader, if you want to aspire to do that, man, there was no way I was going to go out and be in that sort of a contest or put work out there. You know, because those things are like the Hunger Games. I wasn't coming in second. Because I, I was going to absolutely make sure that, you know, I mean, look, I'd earned the trust to get the opportunity. I was not going to let it down. What was your plan of attack for grounding the design team in your first three to six months at City? A lot of it for me, as, un, as incredibly unsexy as it can be, is process. Mm -hmm. Because I think that really is just the gateway of looking at how do we do things? What is our creative process? What is the way that we do stuff? Because I think so many times if you start there and just fix the basics, big changes can come. And I think, so that was my thing, was just to go in and spend the first 60 to 75 days with my mouth shut. 
I want to go in, I want to sit down, I just want to see what it is they're doing. And I, and I saw an organization that largely really was more of that commodity. They were just going in and somebody would say, hey, this is what we want, they would go do it and pass it back. A single kind of design and then say, hey, tell me what's wrong with it. And I just said, look, this isn't what we're doing anymore. You know, we're, we're actually going to go through, and instead of just presenting one thing, we're presenting three. We're going to make it a conversation. Instead of taking what they want as the idea in the beginning, we actually are going to say, okay, look, what's actually the problem that we want to solve? And a, and a lot of that, to be honest, was, was a creation of their own making. Because since they had become a service organization, the product people, the, the, the business, the clients had kind of said, well, look, they aren't really kind of showing up with the thinking, so we probably need to provide it to them. It was a very understandable relationship. But for us to be able to go through and just change that paradigm, and then this amazing thing happened. The exact same people who were the ones where it's like, oh, they aren't that creative. We should probably go to agencies. Suddenly we're the ones where it's like, wow, that, that, this is the work we've been waiting for. Wow, that, this is really smart. Wow, this is really great. But I think a lot of it was just going in and, and looking at how do we do that. But I think also for me, it is being incredibly, almost brutally clear about what the expectations are for that. Mm -hmm. Because I think the other thing that you're gonna find is if you wanna bring that change, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. There are days it is incredibly rough. But what you need to do is you need to have the strength to be stronger than the excuses. And I think that when, you know, whenever we sat with that process, I sat down with the team and said, okay, look, like this is the way forward. This is the things we need to do. And honestly, guys, one of two things is about to happen. Either we're about to start making these changes and the team's gonna get to a good place, or we're gonna start making excuses. And if we start making more excuses than we make change, I'm going to start changing things until that stops. Mm -hmm. Because again, I, I'm not going to lose the people who are bought in. I'm not gonna lose the people that are the producers. And at some point in that moment, there are some people who probably don't wanna sign up for that, and that's fine. But it's, it's a bit of a warning shot of like, great, you, you probably need to go ahead and move on because what this team is gonna be and what this expectation is is gonna be different. Well, it's a warning shot, but it's also permission. No, absolutely, and, and that's, that's why I do it, is because I think for those who want to rise, those who want to buy in, yeah. the, it is permission to own it, to run with it, and with my complete blessing. For those who just want to make the excuses and sit on the sidelines and be the spectators, it is permission to go. Right. <laughs> well, listen, in this next uh, segment, we reached out to our community and we asked them to tell us what they want to know most about. And okay. we have a few questions for you. Sure. Okay. So the first question is, how do you explain the role of design to people at Citibank? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of going back to where we started, right? I think that it's not just design. That our role is to be able to come in and to be able to help teach an organization how to be creative. I think one of the first things you know, through the door was partnering with IDEO. Yeah. And saying, okay, look, you know, because for me, we need to be using design thinking. Mm -hmm. Mainly because there is no greater, what I think is honestly like a Trojan horse for change than design thinking. Mm -hmm. Because if I go out and I just say, okay, look, we're going to do things differently. Now it's, it's your process against my process. If I say, hey, instead, legal, compliance, business, product, whoever you are, that, that for, you know, historically creative has been a department. No, now creative is, is, is what we all are. And I can bring you in on this design thinking process and we're all suddenly a part of it and, and we're doing things like that. That is incredibly powerful. It teaches other people that it's okay to take that risk. It teaches them, and this is what we talked about before, it, 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 it is the permission, right? Because it takes that one guy to run up the hill. Yeah. Go get shot. Don't get killed, get shot. But, but to do that, and then it's like Braveheart, right? Like everybody comes streaming over because they know it's safe. But it's teaching them that it's okay to do that. That it's okay because I just think so many people, look at kids. 
Yeah, are you a painter? Are you Spider-Man? Are you a welder? They say yes to everything. They're open creative channels. I think the society education, so much of that trains it out of us. But I think you know, it's also the ability to bring them in. Because if you ask anybody, you say, are you creative? They go, yeah. You a designer? Nope. Okay, so let's, let's just focus on the creative part then, shall we? So I think that's really what it's grounding it in. And I think it, it really is saying, okay, look, you know, creativity is going to be our stock and trade. And that's why I said before, it empowers the team. It puts us in a very different position to have a very different conversation. And it, it makes our product about our thinking, not just about our executions. How is the design team organized at Citibank? So the, the way that the design team is done is that we're actually, so the, the, the Global Consumer Bank is basically broken into three parts. There is City Fintech, which is basically a 100-person startup that was started a little bit, a little bit over a year ago that's kind of like the, the tip of the spear for the change. We have the, the core part of the business, which is the business that it really had existed. And this is you know, the, the apps, the websites, things like that. And then we have Innovation Labs. And those are really looking at where do we want to go? How do we throw ideas and concepts out there that we can test? And so the design team is the only one that cuts across all three of those in the entire global consumer bank. So, but I think it was done very purposely because, again, if we're going to affect change, we need to have a common narrative across that. We need to have, like, you know, one of the first things we did was build an atomic design language so that all those experiences can look similar, so that our studios can design similarly. We have a, a philosophy in design thinking. We have a, a common visual language in our design language. And that between those things, we then start to have a framework that we can build against and start to kind of leverage universally across all this sort of stuff. But then it, it allows us, like I said, universally to kind of say, okay, like, look, th this is the process for the way that we do this, to be able to help kind of move that needle through all these different organizations. The next question is, um, if you're the only designer in a company, mm -hmm. how do you convince the leadership of that business uh, of the value of design? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I get, I get that question from individual designers. I get it from the heads of design at some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, I think a lot of it is, how do you show value? And I think that value can come in a lot of different forms. I think, you know, I was talking to somebody recently after I had done a talk who came up with led an internal design team. And they're like, look, wait, how do I get less dependent on agencies? How do I find more value for that? And I, again, I think that's showing it financially that, you know, look, there's, it, design has value. It has value through the way that things convert. It has value through... You know, just a, a lot of different things like you know, the ability to speak business. Mm -hmm. And I think that us as an organization, this is why a lot of times they'll ask me, they'll say, like, look, should, you, know, you, you do a lot of work in digital. Should, should a designer learn to code? I said, no, they should learn business. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't translate that creativity into a form that the business can consume and value, mm -hmm. it's lost. It's, it just becomes like, oh, they're like, you know, in the corner wearing a beret doing a watercolor of their spirit animal. Like, it's just like, <laughs> what? So, no, I think it, it's just, it is how do I translate that into value? I think the value then comes, like I said before, about it's not about assets, about, you know, being a critical asset and it's about creativity. I, I think there's a lot of that stuff. But the hard part is if you are the individual designer, it, in my experience, it tends to be a very kind of binary equation. Because either you have somebody who is open to it, who you can have the conversation with, who you can move over time and take those little steps, or you have somebody that's just opposed to it. And the problem is, since you can't kind of do a grassroots movement, it's like, okay, well, either I can do this or I can't. But I think, but it, for me, the, like I said, the, the philosophy still applies even at big companies, because I think even at Starwood, for the great work that we did, there was a lot of stuff that was done skunk works, like me and a developer nights and weekends to do a proof of concept to put in front of the business so we could get a little bit of money like with mobile. We got a little bit of money and we did the mobile website. 
And then we did a little bit more and we did a bad app. And then we got a lot more money and then we did a good app. And then like, we started working with Apple. And then, so it started in this very humble kind of like skunk works way. It wasn't they just showed up and went, we get it. We understand. You didn't walk. You didn't. Now. You didn't walk in no. and say, "I need a million dollars to put five people on this." Yeah. Thing. No. And and again, because I like, I had to demonstrate consumers would be there. I had to demonstrate there was value there. I had to demonstrate yeah. there was revenue there. That you know that 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 was going to be the sort of thing that yeah. yes, we all were going to still have jobs for doing this sort of thing. But I think it's just looking at it and saying, okay, for my business, for this person. How do they define value? And then how can I start to merchandise that? How can I start to go back and point out it performed better? How can I start doing A-B tests? Like that was a big one that I used to use. Was It was like, great, let's do the crappy design. Let's do the better design and let the numbers prove it out. That's right. yeah. And I think even at City, like that's one of the things we do is we test constantly. Because again, if you're going to bring design into an organization, 200 years old, design is like a year and a half old. Very subjective. Putting it in front of consumers constantly, not subjective. So, and we can end here. Um, as the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some roles and methodologies that you think might emerge over the next five years? You know, I think that for me, it, it really is the hope that there, there are creative heads, not design heads. Creative heads meaning that these are the people that can come in and really can take charge and can lead a company in the way that they think and they problem solve that they can do those sort of things that, you know, yes, there's always going to be the, the design and the, the ability to execute it. But I think, because the one thing that I looked at or the one thing over the course of my career that I've seen, the need for companies who can show up with people who have ideas, who can change things, will not go away. Consumers will change. Technology will change. Like all that other stuff that surrounds it will change. The core need to communicate hasn't changed. And because and, I just think, like, you look at all the technology in the world, you look at all this stuff, it's no better than that pen. If I have nothing to write, if I have nothing to say, to draw, to communicate in a way that moves somebody, it's no better than that pen. It can be shiny, you know, shiny, fancy, animated, whatever. But that's the thing I think, is, is I think that, you know, we're getting to the point in the maturity in the industry where we can start to see past the technology, to see that it is about ideas. I think it's just, can we learn from that? Can we learn the importance of content, of communicating? Because I, I half suspect... Gutenberg invented the printed press, and his best friend was on stage going, now content's going to be king. Here we are still having the same discussion. Yes. But, but that's what I mean. Is I, I think that, like I said, there are all these opportunities. Business, the fact that there is a head of design at a bank proves the opportunity, I think. The fact that you know, you start, it started to permeate to that point where companies like that see the value in design, where we see so many of these, you know, so much talent is going to in-house teams. It's because this trend is happening. I think it's up to us as an industry. Can we step up and take advantage of it? Can we lead? Can we make it about more than just pretty pictures? Can we make it about business changing ideas and being the ones that can kind of help shepherd that change? Because if you do that, all the doors open. But I think it's, it's the challenge of us embracing that, of understanding that process and, and understanding our role in doing that. Because I think that's, those are the roles that will change companies. Those are the ones, and again, I think that's why so many people want to look to startups. Because they, they started with that thinking baked in. But it's the bridge of how do I get from baked in to never had. And I think that's where those roles are going to come. Well, Stephen, that's a fantastic place to stop. <laughs> this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, 
go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you, we'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us, we wanna converse with you. Uh, we're not gonna leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've gotta check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.